1: Welcome to New Books in World Affairs. This is your host, Christian Peterson, and today I have the good fortune of speaking with Caton Mistry about his new book, The United States, Italy, and the Origins of Cold War, Waging Political Warfare, 1945 to 1950, which is put out by Cambridge University Press. Caton, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, Christian. Thanks for having me. Good to be here.
1: It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Uh, before we begin, I was wondering if you could give us a brief, uh, um, for lack of a better term, uh, a look at your background and how you came to write the book.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, well, I mean, in terms of uh, my, who, who I am, I'm a lecturer in uh, American history at the University of East Anglia in Norwich. So for your sort of American listeners, that would be the equivalent of a assistant professor. Uh, and I've been here since about 2012 My um, specialism is in American foreign policy, uh, particularly international Cold War, looking at how, uh, particularly state and non-government groups uh, between the U.S. and Europe uh, participated in in the conflict, and uh, as well as intelligence. And these are the sort of the areas in which I research and and teach. Um, In terms of my background, I'm um, the son of immigrants. My my family moved to the U.K from India back in the 1960s, Uh, so I'm sort of the first generation that was born and raised in the UK and sort of growing up this um, led to quite an interesting and rich experience of being sort of both inside and outside of different cultures, having something of a sort of hybrid identity. I guess my interest in sort of the intersections between cultures, identities and nations have been sort of rooted in that. Um, I've had a sort of quite an international uh, outlook because of my background, but also through my education and training, I suppose. Um, I did my undergraduate and graduate work here in the UK. I got my PhD
1: from the University
0: of Birmingham and then went on to postdocs in Ireland at at University College Dublin. And I've also had fellowships at the Universities of Warwick and Oxford. Um, But i spent a lot of time abroad during uh, these years, Uh, particularly in the United States and Italy. So I've also studied at um, at UCLA, the University of California, Los Angeles, uh, had a fellowship at NYU and also periods at the universities of Bologna and Padua in Italy. Um, And these are periods that have been sort of very influential in terms of shaping the project, the questions I would ask, uh, the research agendas and, of course, some of the conclusions. Um, And, of course, they were wonderful places to be based as well.
1: Yeah, my uh, wife spent a semester, and actually no, it was a year uh, studying abroad at UC Dublin. Oh uh, right. And she keeps talking about it as one of the, the, the you know with this amazing experience she has. She still brings that up from time to time. So that must have been a great, uh, great time you had there.
0: Yeah, it was a fantastic place, and um, I remember fondly my office. I had I could see, I could see the sea on a clear day. It was a it was a great place to be. <laughs> Not that you see the sea often because it would it was it would rain a fair bit, but it was it was a fantastic place. I had, I had a wonderful time there.
1: That's good. Um, before we go into the arguments of your book in more detail, I was wondering if you could give the listeners a synopsis of your your of the book.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, course, on a very basic level, the book is analyzing um, U.S.-Italian relations uh, and also broader American efforts to conceptualize and practically wage um, a Cold War. I guess it's addressing two questions which are interrelated in many ways. The first one would be um, looking at how Italy, which was something of a peripheral concern uh, for the United States in Europe after World War II, how this case becomes a seminal front in the post-war struggle against communism. And then the second question was how the supposed lessons from this case, the defeat of the Italian left, the Marxist left, um, supposedly outlined a way for the United States to successfully wage a Cold War uh, through political warfare. What was political warfare? Um, It was an approach to foreign relations that um, coordinated all the covert and overt measures short of war at a nation's command. Uh, and this was seen as particularly appropriate for this era, the aftermath of World War II, when the contours of international conflict were very much in flux. Things were quite different. You know, um, the Cold War is very, uh, a very commonly recognized label, you know, we, whether we, when we teach uh, in the classroom or if you were to sort of speak to somebody on the street. The Cold War is something that you don't necessarily have to define. It's sort of well Recognised. I think it's also misunderstood in many respects. Um, I mean just the term itself is somewhat oxymoronic. You know, uh, war by definition involves armed conflict. It's hostile. It's bloody. It's messy. It's violent.
1: Yeah, I was wondering if you could explain to the listeners why the 1948 elections or election in Italy is such an important moment uh, in the Cold War.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you think of elections in 1948, uh, most uh, people will think of the the one in the United States. There was another uh, election earlier in the year which had just as many uh, ramifications or just as much significance. The 1948 Italian election was the first national vote after the end of fascism. It represented a pivotal moment for Italians and their newfound republic. Um, But it also had a lot of ramifications for the United States, a lot of significance. It marked the first major mobilization by the U.S. government uh, after World War II to influence events abroad. It was the first uh, Cold War intervention. It was the first occasion in which the newly formed CIA um, got involved abroad to try to swing um, foreign affairs. So it's a crucial episode Uh, the Italian election, in the development and organization of American political warfare. The campaign was conducted below the level of total military conflict, so all of these measures short of war. And the fact that Italians rejected the Marxist left in the vote of April 1948 appeared as um, tangible proof that political warfare could defeat communism, both in Italy, but also around Europe. It was sort of seen as uh, a way to defeat Soviet communism more generally. So the Italian election, um, in American eyes, represented uh, a unique way to fight, um, fighting abroad without having to actually fire a gun or drop a bomb, Uh, and it was seen as the first occasion in which the U.S. had waged a war short of actual war.
1: Yeah, it is It is an interesting moment and you use it to make a number of important arguments about the conduct of U.S. foreign policy and U.S. Uh, Italian relations in general I was wondering if you could say more about some of the other main arguments that you advance in this book
0: Yeah, um, so when I started this uh, project I was confronted, as many people do with you know, large literatures on the topic and this one had two remarkably large ones you've got The sort of body of work on US-Italian relations, the transition from fascism to democracy, relations between the two nations, then the origins of the Cold War, which is enormous. Um, Lots of works on the early Cold War. Some have mentioned the Italian election, but often it's in passing part of a familiar narrative, including long telegram, writings of George Kennan, the Truman Doctrine, the Marshall Plan. Um, And the Italian election sort of fits this chronology, if you will. But the mention, the the, the references are often sort of quite uh, superficial, if you will. So what I was trying to do is link these two literatures between the broad conflict and the local one uh, to give a more rounded account. So I look at the uh, efforts of both state and private actors on both sides of the Atlantic. So obviously the government's, um, but also a range of religious, civil, labour and business groups you've got European governments who are involved, Britain, France Ireland are quite active around the Italian election you obviously have the Vatican which has a quite a prominent stake in uh, affairs in Italy you have labour groups like the American Federation of Labour banks, financial companies, multinationals Standard Oil, General Electric then um, you also have uh, sort of prominent um, figures within the United States, you have publishers like Henry Luce, the proprietor of time life the Empire time life um, you have entertainers like Frank Sinatra. you also have cultural figures you have sports stars, people like Joe DiMaggio are involved in this uh, election campaign so it's one of my aims was to challenge the the sort of traditional assumptions in diplomatic history of sort of top down elite policy making You have a very eclectic, varied list of individuals and groups who are involved in both U.S. foreign relations and also uh, ties between the U.S. and Italy. So uh, I have... uh, The the book sort of puts forward, uh, what I'd say, three key arguments. The first is that Italy was never important in and of itself for senior American policymakers. I'll reiterate the senior uh, element here. Although its fate was... uh, Quite important in a broader sense, um, an unstable Italy undermined some of these broader post-war plans, things like the Marshall Plan. Uh, so, defeating the Italian left was central to American understanding and both the prosecu- and also the prosecution of a Cold War. So, um, um, the book looks to examine the origin and definition of uh, Cold War as uh, as a concept, as well as how it was fought through political warfare. I uh, quite consciously uh, sort of not use the definite article, the, uh, for instance. The second key argument was that the Cold War obviously concerned uh, a number of American officials and commentators, but this sort of bipolar conflict, short of war, was less prominent, less pressing for Italians and the range of sort of private groups were involved here. In other words, uh, elections was more than just a Cold War flashpoint. So you've got lots of alternative visions, alternative agendas um, from Italian national sovereignty, pan Catholic political spiritual unity, and apolitical global trade unionism. And you've got all of these sort of narratives that are at play, uh, if you will. So it's, it's not just a question of Cold War. Uh, and then the, 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 the third key argument is that the most sort of telling legacy, if you will, of the Italian election was the emergence of a perception of success in American circles. The supposed lessons of this election in Italy and the campaign that it could help wage a Cold War more generally. My aim here is not critiquing ideological dispositions as flawed or making normative claims as to what constitutes success. Um, I'm quite clear, I think, in the book about what my own view is that the perception of success was largely ungrounded, yet um, this is sort of irrelevant in some respects. The key thing is that um, the notion that American had succeeded in Italy was unequivocal. You can kind of dispute whether it was accurate or not, but it was indisputably prominent in the minds of many policymakers. I think the key issue is to understand how this perception of success came about, and furthermore, sort of consider the sub-consequences. And what I try to do is show how it How it emerged and fueled a problematic future for U.S.-Italian relations, but also American political warfare as it expanded around Europe uh, and soon afterwards uh, the world.
1: Yeah, and it makes for a fascinating read. Yeah, I'm glad glad you wrote the book. I had, you know, a lot of the traditional views of the the moment, um, uh, of the place of Italy in post-war politics, especially the election in April 1948, that, uh, I mean, to be perfectly blunt, you, you, you changed my mind on. I guess the place to go here is is to see how you you develop your arguments. uh let's start with the place of u s Italian relations right after World war two and the in you know the immediate aftermath of the war uh, as you describe uh the u s Italian relations weren't exactly always for lack of a better word people weren't on the same page. they were a bit rocky at times. I was wondering if you could say more about the evolution of U.S.-Italian relations right after World War II. Yeah, um,
0: yeah. Italy always posed a, a real problem for uh, American policymakers, yeah. also for uh, other major statesmen, uh, European statesmen, uh, and it's not something that was uh, unique just to the aftermath of World War II. I mean, in, in the way of a very brief um, sort of prehistory, if you will, um, Italy had posed problems ever since uh, World War One. Uh, the aftermath of, of World War I and the Paris Peace Conference uh, of the Big four, an image which has been circulated a lot given um, with the recent um, wave of books and discussion about uh, about the great war that has come, that has come in, in the last sort of, uh, during the last year. You see that famous image of the big four um, the fourth person of the the, the big four the Italian uh, prime Minister. Vittorio Emanuele uh, Orlando is often the sort of the forgotten man. Um, he famously storms out of the Paris Peace Conference, uh, refuses to sign uh, the treaty. Um, this, of course, is the... Is, it comes... leads uh, to uh, or contributes to uh, the rise of Mussolini. Um, there is, of course, a big uh, discussion. There's a large sort of amount of work that, that discusses this. Um, United States, uh, American policymakers at first welcome Italian fascism uh, in the belief that uh, Mussolini would ensure order uh, as Europe was confronting economic stability um, of the era, particularly during the 1930s 1930s, uh, and and the rising threat of uh, Bolshevism. This of course changes uh, World War II uh, the story is quite well known Um, but the American experience of uh, fighting in Italy uh, raises a number of Uh, um, uh, problems. In short, Italy has what I term a a Janus-faced wartime experience. It had fought, obviously, with the Axis, uh, but it was also a defeated Axis collaborator. It had uh, finished on the side of the Allies, but had previously aligned with with Hitler. Um, It was an enemy ally, uh, which meant that it was both victor and vanquished. Um, On a practical level, what it meant was that Italy was subject to a peace treaty um, in the same way that uh, other um, Axis collaborators were. Um, but at the same time, it was also uh, a nation which had very strong links with the what major Western powers, had made um, you know, a contribution, particularly with um, sort of Italian partisans, uh, towards uh, the liberation of Europe and the expulsion of, of, of fascism. So this, I, I guess, is the backstory as to um, why Italy was a complicated case for the uh, United States uh, as, you, as we come into sort of 1945, the end of 1945.
1: Yeah, and I'd completely forgotten about you know the peace treaty and the disputes about Italian borders that you know obviously have origins back to World War One, uh, even even before that. I thought that was an interesting thing to uh, to bring to bring into the table. So you have this situation where the Americans are trying to figure out what to do with Italy and Western Europe in general, and what you you do in your book is describe how these concerns um, about Italy kind of overlap with the evolution of this idea of Cold War and waging Cold War, uh, and what you do is you as you as you develop these ideas you make reference to events in Italy. One one of the strengths of the book is that you, you for you know to use a buzzword from academia the agency. Of Italian actors. Right. So the, sto- the story is how Americans and, you know, Italians understood events and began, you know, sometimes work together, sometimes not work together. Um, so my, my question is how did the United States begin to pay more attention to, uh, to start with, how did they begin to pay more attention to what was going on in Italy?
0: Right. Um, I Initially of course uh, American uh, British troops had played a key role in liberating the Italian Peninsula. Uh, for many American troops this was the very first Italy was the very first uh, experience of, of uh, practically fighting in World War II um, The US and the British continued to maintain uh, military presence uh, with troops on the ground in Italy in the aftermath um, after the um, the armistice is signed, of course. Um, you have a period of great flux, I think, between sort of the end of fighting in World War II uh, and what historians have commonly sort of classify as the, the beginnings of, 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 of the Cold War around the sort of 1947, 46, 1947 uh, period. Um, there's good reason why this is identified as sort of the, the, the origins or the start of the Cold War, um, but I think there's a lot of um, it's quite important or quite useful to kind of go back and sort of look at some of the debates that are taking place at the time. Um, there, was, there was there was not a clear discussion uh, or a clear sort of consensus in the dis- debate at the time that this was the beginning of uh, a cold war. Um, this is a term that, in some respects, retrospectively been um, been used and placed uh, on to, uh, to on the path on this period. To describe um, a period which was quite uncertain, people were grasping to understand what this kind of new, what this new era was, what this kind of conflict uh, represented. Um, so while we quite um, while we easily look back to this period uh, and identify as the origins of of, of a Cold War, um, it was less certain, I, I think, at the time. Um, and this is where sort of the ideas of um, Somebody like George Kennan, who features very prominently in, in my text, are, are quite uh, useful in sort of clarifying this. Um, there was very little definition. You have people uh, sort of trying to understand what it is, what, what, uh, what the circumstances exactly meant, what, what was the conditions. Um, we were not, the world was not in a time of war, but neither was it the time of pure peace as well. Um, And the discussions in Italy, I think, are quite uh, interesting, or some of the events there. Um, You mentioned the Cold War. In this sort of 1945 to 46 period, interestingly, um, Italian officials, I think, are are, are the ones who are sort of trying to emphasize the the dangers that Italy is uh, facing at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. The Truman Doctrine, one of these key moments which are often... As uh, cited, obviously, of course, in, uh, in discussions of uh, the early Cold War, um, when the Truman administration um, first announced its request for aid to Greece and Turkey, you have Italian officials who are uh, trying to make explicit links and parallels between the situation in Greece and Turkey with Italy. This is outright rejected by the Truman administration. They, they do not want, to, um, uh, they do not want um, Italian officials um, using this as a, as a way to try to, uh, gain more, to, to, to elicit more assistance from the United States. Um, they are actually rejecting sort of the parallels there. Um, I think one of the key moments or the key turning points, if you will, uh, that changes the debate and Italy's place within American priorities will come. Uh, with the
1: Marshall Plan, which of course is uh, kind of shortly afterwards. Yeah, it's 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 interesting how you mention that uh, one of one of the major arguments of your book that in general Italy did not start off as a major Cold War concern of America, and it took it took you know a number of events and it took a lot of lobbying from you know Italian officials. Uh, even to some degree, uh, non-governmental uh, actors—that's what we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit. But uh, you know, I always thought that right from the beginning, almost Italy was right up there as a place that you know the West had to have to you know rebuild uh, you know Western Europe. So, I mean, you mentioned in your answer about you know the Italian officials and trying to forge you know deal with uh, or forge links with or deal with American officials. Uh, I was wondering if you could say a bit more about how Italian politics unfolded and how they dealt with, you know, you can you can weigh out on this, and you you have to some degree already about about the Cold War and you know the the, the Christian Democrats trying to uh, you know control political events as best they could. Yeah, um,
0: I suppose um, when we're talking about events in, inside Italy, um, it's. It is it a very um, as domestic politics often is it is incredibly uh, messy um, It has seen perhaps more than most countries um, primarily because of the lack of um, a clear sort of divide between say the the left and the right, which you find um, particularly in the United States uh, but also um, countries like American understanding of the political scene. The idea that you could uh, create or there would be uh, two clear blocks, the, the Marxist left and then those aligned against uh, the Marxist left. To an extent this is one of the uh, um, sort of issues on which the 1948 election
1: You don't you don't get the sense that uh, somehow you know the American one of the I think one of the problems in U.S. diplomatic history in general is this assumption and it's it's almost uh, for lack of a better term it's it's accepted and sometimes not challenged like it should be that the people across the globe are just sitting there responding to what the United States does that's what you know they do it's just, they don't have any of their own kind of you know concerns domestically or their own ideologies it's all what the U.S. does and it's a response um, and I think. What your book does is show that that's not necessarily the case. I mean, when it fit uh, his interests, uh, de Gasperi definitely tried to use, you know, American aid and standing with America to accomplish his own domestic agendas. He wasn't, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you know, a lot of the time he wasn't being forced to do anything that he didn't perceive as in his interests.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, this is one of, the, uh, one of the key debates that's taking place, uh, that historians have debated particularly, sort of no. 10, 15 years, right? How do we talk about them? How do we uh, discuss America's role in the world? Can you do that without paying attention to um, partners, but also groups that the United States will collaborate with, not all of whom are state actors, of course. Um, there, is a, there is an issue of documents, sources, uh, methodology here, of course. Um,
1: mm-hmm. United
0: has, um, you have much more access to um, archival material in the United States than you do in uh, a lot of even Western European countries. So there, there is that issue here uh, that's at work that influences a lot of a lot of scholarship. Slowly, it is, the situation is, in, is is improving, and historians have started to draw on the the material that you find in state archives um, in other nations. Um, but not just at a state level. I think one of the most interesting areas um, that the field is going in is looking at the, the, the contribution of non state actors. So uh, I sort of briefly mentioned the role, for example, of the Vatican. Um, but then also you have um, important actors like uh, labor organizations, um, Italian-American uh, groups in, in this instance, um, but also private businesses as well. Um, mm-hmm. Which I think overall gives a much more uh, complete picture and a more interesting um, sort of account of these what were genuinely international and transnational um, sort of moments, uh, if you will. Um, I wanted to just go back one one second to sort of we were discussing earlier about the um, the origins of of, of of the Cold War. Um, one of the things that um, I tried to do in the book is, is to sort of understand the, the this, 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 this period um, to, 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 to explore what we understand by Cold War. Um, it's a term which is banded around obviously quite quite a lot, but in some respects the, the term itself is, is somewhat oxymoronic. Um, how do you have a war without, without actually uh, waging uh, a hot military conflict, um, it's, it, this is one of the debates that was taking place in this sort of 45 to 50 period. Um, and the reason why um, I found it so interesting is there is this window of time between World War Two and Korea, which are in some respects the, the bookends to, uh, to, to my project, when there is um, this discussion, uh, hotball was, was widely considered undesirable and also impractical. Um, there's great uncertainty over the shape of this new struggle, uh, and it's events like uh, Italy which help officials, which help the general public sort of grasp what it is that this new conflict was and how it would be how form. Uh, and this is where um, sort of the Italian election episode, I think, it brings these debates into sharp focus. It's certainly used by... Uh, officials like Cannon and other prominent American um, Policymakers but also commentators uh, Influential figures in the press to help give better definition to what it was uh, Or what what it was what the Cold War uh, Represented and how it would manifest
1: Yeah, that's I want to get back to we're gonna we're gonna to talk to, uh, more about the non-governmental aspect of your study but I think it's a good segue how you how you worded that to the evolution of poli- the idea of political warfare among American policymakers. Uh, I was wondering if you could say more about the, how that concept evolves, and if, if you would, can, uh, you can talk briefly about uh, the, what goes on, the, the ad hoc nature of U.S. Uh, political warfare efforts. Yeah,
0: um, I guess the first thing is probably quite useful for the listeners if I was to sort of um, define uh, what I mean by political warfare. Um, simply put it was the employment of all uh, the measures at the nation's command uh, to achieve its foreign policy objectives uh, short of full scale hot war Um, this was um, something which uh, George Kennan uh, spends a lot of time um, emphasizing uh, a lot of his uh, memos uh, a lot of his own work and research in this period uh, revolves around this idea of of, 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 of international conflict without um, full-scale military uh, competition. The the ad hoc nature of it is, in some respects, linked to the uncertainty around the period. Um, Most Americans, like most um, people around the world at this time, understood uh, conflict as distinctly, oh, it, oh, within the realms of of, of of total military conflict, two world wars had given um, had, uh, you could clearly understand hot war. Um, this was something that happened in wartime. Peacetime there was a time of, uh, of of no international conflict, or at least not in that in, in that sense. Um, so the so the the, the the attempt to influence affairs in uh, countries like Italy, like the episode of the, uh, the Italian election, uh, was in some respects uh, uh, an exploration uh, in the dark, if you will. Um, as a result, many of the attempts were ad hoc. You you didn't have the, the infrastructure that you that was commonplace, obviously during uh, wartime. You didn't have. Um, Full time property. There were no full time uh, permanent um, um, covert operations uh, agencies uh, and activities. As a result, many of the initiatives and the activities that the United States um, ends up uh, engaging in are, are quite improvised, led by uh, groups that you wouldn't uh, anticipate or expect to be engaged in these sort of activities. Um, the American Embassy, for one, was was, was one of the most uh, important uh, actors um, in the run-up to the 1948 Italian election. You have the American Ambassador James Dunn, who played a very prominent role, much more than you uh, that you would one would imagine for the official diplomatic uh, representative uh, of the of the United States towards towards Italy. Yeah,
1: and another another. Uh person you mentioned, I, I, tell me, I might be pronouncing his name incorrectly, I don't have it written down in front of me, is, is it Luigi Jeddah uh, yeah. about from an American Catholic organization, I believe, uh, who effectively presented or, or played in this kind of political warfare game. I mean, maybe he didn't necessarily think of himself as doing it, but effectively presented American positions much better than you would think for someone who wasn't trained in the art of, you know, deception. Um so I thought that was an interesting layer to to your study. Yeah, and it's interesting. Go ahead.
0: I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Jeddah because he's um, a very interesting character. I mean, he he himself has no training. He has no background in propaganda. He's um, he's a trained physician, um, and he heads up the the the, the, the Vatican-controlled uh, civic uh, committees. These were normally uh, independent organisations, but they had very close links to 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 the Vatican, um, and they were uh, units that would um, that had a, it was a very strong grassroots uh, network, uh, and it plays a very important role in the lead up to the election in terms of getting out the message in terms of uh, the Catholic world, emphasising the importance um, of, of of firstly turning out to vote. Uh, and secondly, not voting for the Marxist left. Right? The, 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 the 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 line uh, quite well established now by uh, lots of sort of work that's emphasised the importance of religion in american foreign particularly in the Cold War, was that you could not vote for an atheist um, totalitarian uh, party which had links with um, with, with Godless communism centred in Moscow, right? So Jeddah is, um, is a guy who has the ear of the Pope, um, and he is incredibly effective in, 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 in mobilizing um, communities. Um, they would go to small villages, set up uh, projectors, um, pass out a lot of information about the importance of voting and important, and voting for uh, the non-communist party. You mentioned that... The, the the American sort of interest in Jeddah, uh, they, they were quite fascinated by his, by his methods, but um, also the applicability of, of what he was doing to other nations, uh, other Western European countries where there were uh, prominent uh, Catholic populations. Um, the thing was, uh, while Jeddah was quite um, effective in terms of what he was doing, it was specifically attuned to Italian conditions. Uh, And um, the message that he and the Vatican were putting out was quite different to the one that the United States was uh, emphasizing. Yes, they didn't want the Communists in power, but neither did they want the sort of the brand of American free-market liberal capitalism that the Truman administration was obviously favoring in Italy Um, for Jeddah, for the Vatican they envisaged uh, a very strong papal influence in Italian political, social, Mm. and cultural life. Um, And this was one of the key messages that, in some respects, was overlooked by uh, many American observers and American officials at the time uh, behind this propaganda. So it has the the civic committees and people like Jeddah were influential, but they were not necessarily pushing the same agenda that the United States was uh, in favor of. Uh, and this was one of the examples of how, um, these marriages of convenience, uh, a term that I use in the book, um, had useful short term gains, but there were some very, there were numerous complications to these sort of short term alliances, uh, as you go further down the line.
1: Yeah, that's an, it's a very effective part of the book, uh. I mean, even when the Truman administration was working with the Vatican or, you know, the, the Catholic Church, various organizations, some Americans were going crazy <laughs> thinking of the United right. States working with, with the Pope. I mean, typical, or not, maybe not typical is the right word, but kind of the anti-Catholicism it was still a major issue in American, you know, politics, in, oh, yeah. certainly 1945.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, this this pulled a lot of heat on, on Truman himself back at home. You had... Um Protestant groups, uh, major Protestant domin- denominations, um, lining up to go and see him in the White House to protest <laughs> the. Um, well, firstly, the continuation of of the president's personal representative to the Pope, which was something that Franklin Delano Roosevelt had had um, had had set up, of course, during World War II, and and Truman continued um, with this post. Myron Taylor, who was. Um, who was, uh, who was the guy who was sent to the, to, to the Vatican. Um, Taylor got a lot of, uh, was, on, was on the receiving end of a lot of criticism uh, from uh, domestic uh, groups in the United States, Protestant groups in the United States for his mission. Uh, Truman came under a lot of attack uh, as well. Uh, it, it created a lot of uh, domestic grief for him. Um, and, and, and this is an interesting uh, sort of factor when we talk as I sort of mentioned earlier, a lot of historians have paid uh, much more attention to the importance of religion. Um, but it's not until 1984 that the U.S. and the Vatican officially exchanged diplomatic um, representatives. Right? You don't have a formal exchange of ambassadors until the 1980s. Um, you know, if the Cold War was partly uh, a struggle for of, of faith of, um, of of of, of uh, of, of Christian nations, or the importance of having, uh, or the importance of religion uh, against atheist communism, uh, it, it's quite an interesting sort of point that it's not until the 1980s uh, that you have formal recognition between the United States and the Vatican. Of course, the Vatican is not, not a state, even though it does have uh, a significant uh, diplomatic presence in the world.
1: Yeah, it's funny you mention that. I was just at the, uh, the Reagan Library doing research, and I came across, and I've, I've seen him online as well, uh, Reagan's personal uh, correspondence with uh, John Paul II, uh, his his letters back and forth, are, are a pretty interesting reading. Um, and once again, I think it, it, put, it goes to your point, is that a lot, for lack of a better term, the Pope is sometimes very critical of, of Reagan's military policies in these letters, and Reagan kind of just took it and just uh, you know, oh well, or maybe maybe not. Oh well is the right word, but he he definitely took it in stride that the Pope was still they were fighting on the same side, even though he was taking you know some sh- shots. I mean, very guarded shots at Reagan's kind of nuclear uh, weapons policies. So yeah, that, that is that is an interesting point. Mm. I mean, and and it getting is back, a a
0: parallel, oh, sorry, uh, um, Pope um, Pius uh, uh, was also uh, quite critical of the American president. Uh, in the 1940s, he, would make, he was very cautious in terms of um, sort of the extent of the um, sort of alliance between the U.S. Uh, and the Vatican. And he, was, he recognized the, the importance or the weight of the United States in the post-war era, uh, but he was also very cautious um, and, 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 and hesitant for um, a strong American influence again over Italian. Uh, political, social, and cultural, um, and sp- perhaps more importantly, spiritual life. Um, so you have these, mm-hmm. the, the, this battle for influence going on between groups who are, um, between two entities who are, who are normally um, very closely aligned, uh, particularly, oh, this is something that's emphasized uh, a lot in the run up to um, the, the election of 1948.
1: Yes, and and, and as uh, uh, you know, as events move towards the election of uh, nineteen forty-eight, April nineteen forty-eight, you see the evolution of the United States trying to figure out how to approach political warfare, and, and by extension, the Cold War. And George Kennan, obviously, most a lot of your uh, chapter five uh, deals with, with with Kennan. I was wondering if you could kind of describe his you know influence or lack of influence on U.S. policy and how you evaluate him as an actor in your, in your work.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, Ken is, um, it's someone who, um, I've, I've written a little bit on Kenan, uh, before I published this book and, um, I sort of vowed not to, um, sort of harp on about him uh, too much, but like all <laughs> best intentions, uh, I ended up, uh, having to sort of swallow my words and, and, and Kenan appears again quite prominently. Um, it's sort of—it's difficult, uh, it's not impossible, to, to discuss the, uh, the origins of Comwall uh, Downton, looking at Kenan, um, partly because of his influence. I mean, he wasn't uh, the, the, the whole team strategic sage that uh, some of the sort of uh, some of the accounts, almost popular accounts, have, have sort of suggested. Um, but he's very important, I think, in terms of giving better definition to what this uh, era of uh, of not being at war, but not being at peace uh, in the traditional sense uh, was like. He obviously leaves a a vast record as well. He's a wonderful writer, incredibly insightful, um, very insecure, pessimistic. Um, He is, uh, he would later be, Obviously, he would become also famous for his historical work. Um, he's a fascinating figure, and, and and I think that some of the uh, attention he receives from historians and myself, I'd uh, include myself in this, is that it, it, it's, he's just a fascinating figure whose record is so rich. He provides so much material. Um, he elucidates he, 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 uh, and describes... Uh, Sort of the events at the time in in quite uh, in quite a striking way. Um, so, so my take on Kenon, I mean the, the traditional or Kenan's most famous uh, is Kenan is known most uh, to most of to, to your listeners, I imagine, as being for his ideas uh, around containment. And there's a big list, a big discussion amongst academics about. The nature of his containment, right? A political, and military strategy. This was um, a topic that scholars really grappled with from the 1970s, and in respect, continue to, uh, to 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 discuss uh, today. Um, it's quite remarkable the amount of material there is on Kenan, um and there's more coming out all the time, uh, particularly with the opening of his uh, the full opening of his of his private papers and diaries, etc. That a figure who doesn't reach, that never holds a senior government position, um, has received so much attention in countless books and articles. As I mentioned, much of this revolves on the idea of Kennan as uh, the father of, con- of containment, uh, which is something that I personally don't um, sort of believe he was. Um, my sort of take is much more is along the lines of uh, the importance of his contemporary thinking. Now, this was not on the basis, contemporary thinking was not on strategy or producing a blueprint for U.S. foreign relations. Um, rather, it was about uh, sort of the art of foreign policy, if you will, in this post World War II era, an atomic one, of course, uh, where these some traditional conceptions of uh, war and peace were um, increasingly obsolete. No, they weren't entirely meaningless. Um, but they weren't as meaningful uh, as, as, as before, perhaps, uh, the two world wars. Um, one of the things that Ken kept coming back to was how you confront an enemy um, in peacetime without resorting to uh, hot, military, violent, total war, right? How could one uh, mm-hmm. wage a war short of actual war? Uh, and this was, in many respects, the crucial um, question, both conceptually and practically. Uh, and for Kenan, the answer um, yeah, appears in, uh, or the way he formulates it, is, is through political warfare, right? The National Cold War wouldn't manifest as um, a traditional military conflict with the two armies facing up against one another. Rather, it was about all the uh, measures a nations command short of war to achieve its uh, national objectives. Kennan yeah. uh, should point out, is not the only one to advocate this. Right? You have other important uh, administration officials like uh, the Secretary of Defense, James Forrestal, uh, Alan Dulles, who's a private citizen but he, he's involved in several um, sort of committees, um, but also prominent New York Times commentators. Um, but, but Kenan uh, explains, he provides the strongest intellectual rationale and. And, and expresses it more, more clearly
1: than uh, than perhaps some of the others. Yeah, you, you raise you raise a good issue. What what, what surprised me maybe uh, I'm surprised not the best word but I found very interesting was how he wrote about Italy in his writings. Yeah. Uh, I mean, talking about the fragility, almost. You you talk about how he used feminine language to describe the inability of the Italians to resist the authoritarian temptation, so to speak. Uh, that, I guess it's not exactly shocking per se, but it was interesting that he was that convinced that Italians needed to be propped up. Um, that's not, I mean, something I've read that much. I'm not a Kenan expert by any means, but I haven't read that much in the literature.
0: Yeah, I mean, Kenan, and this is one of the, I think, one of the the, the reasons why he continues to fascinate historians is that he puts, he leaves such a long paper trail. He puts down things on paper that. Um, other officials simply did not, would not, uh, could not. He, I mean, Kennan is a man of, 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 of the North in many respects, I mean his, his family origin. Um, he grows up in, 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 in Wisconsin. Um, he's a great fan of uh, Scandinavia, of, uh, of Russia, uh, of Germany, um, sort of Anglo-Saxon um, Democracy. Um, he's very suspicious of uh, what what he would consider sort of uh, Latin peoples, um, and Italy would would fall uh, within that um, sort of categorization. His disdain or his suspicions, rather, towards uh, the Latin character um, is something that you see in in, in several guises. Uh, I think you can sort of trace some of the ideas to his say, policy recommendations. For example, his views towards NATO, he was quite opposed to including Italy in the same way that he was opposed to including countries like Greece, uh, partly on geographic grounds, but also because of this notion of what uh, Anglo-Saxon North Atlantic um, security and democratic ideals and values uh, stood for. Um, there's a personal angle as well, as, as this kind of has been widely noted and and, and, and discussed. Um, Kenan was married to a Norwegian. He spends a lot of time uh, in Scandinavia, in Norway during his life. Um, he likes the he, he, he genuinely values the, um, the, 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 the 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 calm, rational way is how he puts it that people go about their business <laughs> rather than the hot headed and, and uh, and, uh, and impetuous uh, in a way that, um, that that life uh, would manifest in, in, in the Mediterranean. He um, should point out he, kn- he knows very little about uh, the Mediterranean or Latin America or, or, or the sort of idea of Latinism, if you will. Um, but that didn't stop Kennan from, from, from using on it on several occasions.
1: Yeah, I come from a similar background as Kenan. I'm from—I grew up in Minnesota. I'm from a very Scandinavian family. My grandmother, at times, preferred to speak uh, Norwegian. Oh, okay. Wow. And definitely, emotion was not something that was prized in my my upbringing among my family. <laughs> right. Uh, I can, okay. I can, tell, I can tell you that. Um, I, I hate to keep going on Kenan, but one another thing, one more point, then we we'll, we'll move away from Kenan. Uh, is his. He ha- and you see this in the other literature. He has these moments of absolute depression, mm-hmm. like almost like going to the corner, like my three-year-old likes to do when he doesn't get what he wants and sulks. Mm-hmm. And why I bring this up, and then it was interesting that at points he, you like you said, he puts things on paper that necessarily people won't do. Is and you can correct me if I'm getting the details wrong, but he did something like advocate that martial law be declared and that the leftist, I believe, the Communist Party outlawed because he was so convinced at one point that, that Italy would fall to the left and be a Cold War victory. He advocated like something like that on paper that people thought was crazy uh, yeah. advice.
0: So this um, this is, is what's infamously uh, noted as uh, Kennan's uh, Manila telegram. Uh, yes. Um, this uh, is a message that he sends on the eve of the Italian election, in which... Um, Panic, he, he, he is genuinely fearful that the Marxist left, the Communist Party and its socialist allies, are going to win the Italian vote. Uh, and, he, and in this panic, he suggests that um, rather than let the left wing win, um, win the election legally in a, in a bloodless coup, um, he suggests outlawing the, 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 the Communist Party. He's fully aware that this will probably lead to a civil war. Um, But he suggests that well, it would be better to partition the country with perhaps uh, a US-friendly regime in the south um, and the communists taking the north, um, with uh, the United States being able to secure more important military positions in the south of of Italy on the Italian peninsula. He's way off on this, I mean he, he, he's yeah. out of the loop actually, the reason why he's in Manila is that he's he, uh, coming back to the United States from, from Japan where he, he, he's been to assess the situation there. Um, he hasn't really been following the, the most recent reports in the early part of 1948 about what's happening in Italy. Um, he is not aware that, that, the, that the left is... Um, is, 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 is predictions are that the left is not going to win. But he's, in, he, he's greatly troubled by, um, by, this, by this idea. Now, Kennan's ideas are quickly of suggestions, quickly nipped in the bud. Um, so the more sensible uh, head uh, and opinions prevail. Um, but he kind of, gets to a couple of points. Firstly, I mean, Kenan, there is a lot of attention on him, and as and, and sort I've of, uh, sort of mentioned, he's, he features fairly prominently, if, but he's not most important uh, official uh, when it comes to American policy making, um, and particularly not when it comes to what the United States does in the lead up to um, the Italian election. But on a more general point, I think this episode is, is very interesting because um, it also reflects Kennan's profound um, sort of sense of disappointment uh, at American political warfare. So, so Ken outlines, um, he provides the most uh, effective uh, case for why the United States needs to uh, wage a war short of actually uh, going to war. Um, but he's consistently disappointed with the way that the United States does this. Uh, and I think this really comes up with this suggestion of outlawing the, the Communist Party. His argument is, is that, well, if we had effectively used all of these means short of war, used propaganda effectively, uh, used um, covert influences, uh, then we wouldn't be in this position. And this is a theme that he returns to in the aftermath of the, of the election and, 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 and the victory for the Christian Democrats, um, that it went well, but it could easily have, have not gone, got, gone well. And we need to prevent this from happening again, we can't have these ad hoc initiatives um, effective political warfare will ensure that there is no um, there's no risk of going, of, of hot war breaking out, uh, and the minimum telegram was a kind of a reflection of his profound disappointment uh, at what the United States was doing something which, would, we, would, which he would express time and time again as a <laughs> yes. long um, uh, distinguished and um, uh, career
1: yeah, yeah, that, that's true. Uh, I can't believe how long he lived. I think he lived, what was it, like 103 when he died? Right, right. Uh, yeah. Amazing. Um, go ahead. Oh, no, sorry. Okay. Uh, I guess that's a great segue into uh, the next issue, the uh, election in uh, 18 April uh, 1948. And you, you've touched on it a little bit, but I, I thought you might want to develop uh, the idea a little bit further of why many Americans saw this as vindicating their approach or they saw it a typical warfare They saw it as a success and in what ways that idea of success might uh, well it did in the long term prove very misleading
0: Yeah um, I guess the the, so the 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 election result um, Brought about a uh, Very convincing victory for The, the Christian Democrats Um as I've sort of hinted at uh, or suggested in some of the previous discussions, uh, this was um, on account of numerous uh, factors, numerous um, groups that are involved, partly the Vatican Civic Committee. Um, also, quite importantly, the, the, the campaign waged and launched by the, the, the Christian Democrats themselves. Um, but th- these were not um, factors that were in the forefront of American. Uh, policy makers and commentators. The so, uh, was finally announced. And the American um, policy makers and commentators uh, were firstly relieved, but um, but moreover they were uh, quite ecstatic at um, at the at, at the outcome because they saw this as uh, a vindication of uh, their efforts of uh, of, of uh, American intervention in the. In, in the Italian election itself. Uh, these efforts, short of war, um, particularly the propaganda campaign, um, the, the, were, were seen as, um, as playing a crucial role in swinging the electoral scales away from, uh, from the Marxist left. There is this um, intense debate that takes place in the, in the, in the days and the weeks after uh, about the different initiatives, particularly the propaganda surrounding, say, the Marshall Plan, um, how this was so influential in checking the communist uh, threat, the spread of, of of communist influence from Eastern Europe to uh, Western Europe. Um, and there are these discussions about um, expanding this, Uh, this campaign or these initiatives um, to firstly consolidate Western Europe, uh, but then also um, to expand some of these initiatives into Eastern Europe itself uh, to start to undermine and chip away at at Soviet influence uh, over over Eastern European uh, states.
1: Yeah, and what what's interesting about it is how much, at least in the instance of Italy, how much of the, you know, clandestine operations were run outside the purview of the CIA. Uh, it doesn't, you know, beyond the ad hoc features and a lot of the stuff coming out of the embassy that the, the National Security Council created institutions to carry that out that the CIA didn't have direct control over, which eventually changes, Uh so I was, I was wondering if you could say something about where the CIA fits into this or doesn't fit into these, you know, the election and you know the, the, for lack of a better term, the efforts to, to get rid of the Italian left.
0: Yeah. So the the, the CIA, um, one of the sort of foundational myths of the CIA is that um, when it comes to covert action and covert operations, is that uh, it stops, it cuts its teeth in in Italy in the 1948 campaign, Uh, it played a decisive role. This is one of the the, the stories that um, many of its um, covert operators would would recount and and repeat. Um, This was the first uh, not only American intervention in the early Cold War, but the first CIA operation. Um, And to an extent, it's true that it was the first CIA operation, but it was incredibly small scale. much of the discussion revolves around passing money to certain non-communist groups, um, but much of the uh, many of the sources to corroborate this are incredibly problematic. Uh, the CIA um, has has not refused, uh, has not uh, released. Sorry, its, its operational files uh, even during the 1990s when it was going through a period of um, of great openness as the then CIA director Robert Gates. Who, course, until quite recently, it was actually the Fens under Bush and Obama. Um, he uh, announced a new period of openness, uh, coinciding with the end of the Cold War, greater transparency, um, and, and promised the declassification of a number of, uh, of, of, of records pertaining to covert operations. Uh, An interview was slated as one of them, but no records were ever released. As a result, many of these claims are based on uh, accounts from participants who were intimately involved in these uh, operations, uh, people who have a vested interest in emphasizing the efficiency and importance of, of these actions. Um, but going back to sort of the, the, the operations uh, and what we do know about them, um, the CIA had a very small capability uh, uh, at the time of the Italian election. Uh, one of the things that I do in the book is sort of show how many of the more Um, sort of systematic uh, attempts to provide uh, assistance to both the Christian Democrats but also the non-communist socialist left in Italy came from uh, groups outside of the agency so the State Department it's um, the embassy of course, uh, private groups like the American Federation of Labor, um, Vatican organizations then you also have um, Ad-hoc efforts led by people like Alan Dulles, James Forrestal. And the reason why they were weighing in at a relatively late stage of the day was a profound sense of disappointment towards the CIA for not um, sort of mobilizing uh, and, and, and and providing sufficient covert assistance to, um, to, to to the non-communist uh, Italian groups. Um, there's a lot of um, institutional uh, debate and and, and discussion warfare, if you will, uh, but there's also personal gripes. The head of the CIA at the time, uh, Chet Golroska, was incredibly cautious. He was uh, very reluctant for the agency to be involved in these sort of uh, activities, um, and quite often he was, um, if not bypassed, he was certainly not kept in the loop. There's some interesting, I there's mean, uh, a couple of really interesting documents showing uh, Hillenkoetter, going, just the head of the CIA, going to Truman, uh, going to George Marshall in the weeks before the election, saying, "Look, we're using these private companies to fly in shipments of arms, but we have no control over these um, the, 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 these companies, that, uh, and these um, these initiatives and these projects are, are, are very dangerous. There's, there's a real." Danger that uh, our hand could be exposed here and undermine, and we, we would undermine the entire um, election campaign. This is the head of the CIA going to <laughs> other uh, senior officials, um, but he, he was he, he was fairly marginalised. Um, and in fact, in the aftermath of the of, of of the Italian election, I think one of the key legacies, if you will, was the creation of the Office of Policy Coordination. Uh, this is a small unit um, which was dedicated solely to covert operations. Um, this was the very first uh, agency in American peacetime history whose sole remit was covert operations. Um, when, 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 when the history of the CIA is often uh, cited, the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, is often mentioned as the precursor to the CIA. In many respects, the OSS, um, its true reincarnation after the war, uh, after World War II, was through the Office of Policy Coordination. This was the unit that did all of the covert stuff. Um, this was the unit that was engaged in all of the, the, the more controversial aspects of, or the most controversial aspects of covert operations. It would later be folded into the CIA in the 1950s, but. The profound disappointment with what the CIA itself was doing in Italy uh, led to the creation of an agency which would engage solely in covert operations. Uh, And this was supported by uh, all of the key senior officials in the Truman administration at the time.
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's a very interesting read, that that, that section of the book. Uh, and it raises, uh, at least by extension, the issue of how Italian actors saw these events—the election and, and, and the, you know, what goes on after the election—in terms of where it fit into their understanding of, you know, Italian politics. But even more so, the, the, this concept that you talked about—the Cold War. Did it, you know, did Prime Minister uh, Di Gasperi think of it as, you know, the election as this pivotal or very important moment in the Cold War, you know, struggle against the left? Uh, I was wondering if you could say more about the Italian angle on these on these events.
0: Yeah, so for um, for the I mean, he was um, he was consistently um, trying to both uh, reassert Italy's uh, strength, its um, sort of maturity, if you will, on the international scene, um, emphasizing Italian national sovereignty that its choices would not be dictated from the outside. Um, but unfortunately, one of the one of the consequences of, 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 of this sort of line is that it's not very really conducive to to receiving um, assistance, particularly financial assistance, um, for an economy that was that was that was, that was struggling. Um, it was not conducive to gaining to helping the Italian security services uh, build up its arms. There were obviously lots of uh, restrictions and and and. Um, Clause placed on Italian military as a result of the peace treaty, uh, going back to its World War II experience. Um, so he was throughout the post-war period. He was both asserting the Italian strength, but also hinting at and emphasising its weakness. Um, and this is and this is one area in which uh, the language of the Cold War proves quite useful for him when in his discussions with uh, the United States. Um, once the election of nineteen forty-eight, um, once the result is is, is announced, De Gasperi he he considers this as a uh, as a vindication for for his own approach, but also that Italians have made a firm decision that um, as they had that the Christian Democrats were the party who they would entrust for uh, for, for mm. to, to guide Italy's future, and this again meant uh, not. Uh, uh, um, Coming to every American demand, uh, when it came to the use of, say, Marshall Plan assistance, the creation of uh, a liberal, democratic, capitalist order was not the same um, agenda as, as the Gasperi. Um, the path to post-war reconstruction and reform was was uh, was was a, was a different one from the from from the programs that were pushed by. Um, the 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 ERP the, the, uh, the, um, the administrators of the of, of the Marshall Plan and you see numerous tensions that come out in at least use of Marshall Plan funds in terms of reconstructing or rec or reforming uh, the Italian um, economic system in the in the aftermath of of, of 1948.
1: Yeah, it, it plays in what you've just described plays into the ideas you raise in the book. Uh, of containing communism, and in, in some instances, the the nuances or the, the the necessary correctives you have to use if you uh, employ Gerlundestud's "Empire by Invitation" thesis—that it wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, a straightforward kind of story of you know Italians and Americans working together on the same page to you know wage the Cold War. Uh, very, very interesting stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, Lundestad has um, his 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 idea received a lot of attention, of course, when 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 he first uh, when when he first put this out, and um, it's a line that he uh, an argument that he's sort of continued to make, tweaking it uh, ever since. Um, th- there are some interesting elements to it, but um, it's overly simplistic in 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 the idea that you know Europeans. Um, across the board we're, were happy to give up um, uh, what we 're inviting in the united states um, one it overlooks obviously the, the, the differences between a you know, very a uh, uh, very heterogeneous european uh, political body but also within national uh, boundaries as well i mean I mentioned a little bit earlier the, the, the number of competing political and social voices within Italy. It was very hard for one group to sort of step forward and, 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 and claim to be um, representing all Italian uh, voters or all Italian constituents. Um, De Gasperi was the dominant uh, political figure, but as I mentioned, he faced a lot of uh, opposition from within his own party. Um, the Christian Democrats win the election, but there, there remains a, a sizable... Uh, opposition movement, uh, close to uh, over 30% still of the electorate still vote for uh, Marxist left parties. Um, and the Marxist left in Italy would continue to have a very strong influence in Italian political and social uh, life uh, throughout, uh, throughout the Cold War and running up to the present day. I mean, many of the, the senior officials in Italian politics. Uh, today, um, so many of them have, were,
1: were formerly in the Italian Communist Party. Yeah, Gorbachev had a lot of respect for the Italian Communist Party. Mm. Uh, if you look at his, his you know, his, his internal documents and just his arguments he's made, you know, the Spanish communists and socialists as well. Um, so, yeah, that is that is, that's true about their influence in in Italian politics. So, where where the book concludes, and, and, and once again raises interesting grounds, is with this idea of the perception of American success in Italy and how it influences U.S. policy uh, in the late 40s into the 1950s. Uh, I was wondering if you could say more about that and maybe make reference to how it influences uh, in what ways it shapes the arguments of uh, document NSC-68. Yeah, so um, one of the
0: well, one of my conclusions or key arguments uh, that I put forward here is that the, um, that the Italian election, uh, um, one of the most, arguably the most telling legacy of the election result was the emergence of um, a perception of success in American circles. Right? The supposed lessons of the election campaign seem to outline how the United States could wage uh, a Cold War effectively um, or generally as well. Um, my aim here is not to you know, just criticize the, the, these perceptions as false, um, but I'm interested, and in one of the things I've tried to do in the book is to show how they emerge, but also the ramifications of them. So, on the one hand, it leads to a very complicated future um, alliance between the United States uh, and Italy. Um, the Truman administration faces a very inconvenient ally in in the form of the Christian Democrats. Um, this was a group who, which the United States had 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 placed a lot of um, a lot of emphasis, obviously uh, during the election campaign. They were considered as uh, as loyal partners who would help bring about the reform, the reform ethos of the Marshall Plan. They were the ones who would realise this. The years uh, after nineteen forty eight showed that this was not necessarily the case. The Italians had their own program their own priorities, the alliances with um, American labor, with the Vatican, would similarly be incredibly uh, strained. This was one of the ramifications of this perception of success, a very difficult, rocky uh, U.S.-Italian relationship. The other key um, upshot is that it uh, fuels uh, the notion that the tactics of the United States Uh, used in Italy could be exported uh, elsewhere, but this uh, offered a blueprint for how you could wage a war without going to war, how you could defeat um, communism in other locations without risking World War III. Um, Western Europe was starting to consolidate partly through um, European economic recovery, uh, there's a big debate whether you know how influential the Marshall Plan was in this, but the Marshall Plan has has an obviously an important role. You have the formation of NATO shortly afterwards, the division of Germany, you start to see the the, the division of the continent begin to crystallise. The, the 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 discussion that the American policymakers then turn to is well, what are what opportunities do does Political warfare, particularly with the newly created Office of Policy Coordination, this covert operations unit, what does it offer us on the other side of the Iron Curtain? So you see this shift and this, uh, this um, sort of evolution of uh, covert tactics to, 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 to start to chip away at and try to undermine communist influence in several Eastern European countries through um, underground activities, but also resistance movements. Things, uh, activities which would later manifest as uh, prominent refugee organizations, emigre organizations like the National Committee for Free Europe, Radio Free Europe, a lot of these key psychological warfare um, initiatives, things which would be chalked down, would, would, would be labeled as soft power in later years, using Joseph Nye's definition. Many of these ideas have their origins in these discussions that are taking place in in the late 1940s, uh, and sort of one of my arguments is that many of these are informed by this notion that what the United States did in Italy um, was a success elite can be exported and expanded.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's interesting you, you mention that. Um, what struck me about, especially as this, for lack of a better term, as these debates emerge about how to use political warfare in other in other areas. Is that when they wrote up documents, especially NSC 68, about you know this global struggle for hearts and minds and the disadvantages that democratic uh, you know governments were at uh, for was how they all of a sudden didn't consult the actual specialists on the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe when they came up with their arguments that they were kind of basing it on one episode that literally was you know had nothing to do with the situation in places in Eastern Europe and parts of the Soviet Union. That an example was used in an ahistorical type of fashion. Uh, It it reminds me of uh, when I interviewed Joe Migdal about his book, about how the Bush administration came up with all these theories about how Iraq would topple when they invaded because it was an authoritarian regime and people would rise up like they did in Eastern Europe. Uh, It's amazing how history sometimes gets lost when you think you have... historical example that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, hubris can go some way towards explaining uh, some of these uh, sort of decisions, Um, but it's fascinating that the assumptions uh, as to what um, officials thought was a success or the reasons why certain events went in, in the way that they did, how they could be replicated elsewhere is, is, is quite striking, as you mentioned, sort of the notion that um, um, Eastern Europeans would would would, would rise up um, uh, and, and and sort of risk uh, risk their lives for for uh, for, for, for these uh, for these sort of refugee organisations, groups which have very little um, sort of popular support, very little um, presence on the ground, if you will. Um, you mentioned MSC-68, that, that, that's kind of an interesting point in the evolution and, um, and, and the challenges that political warfare uh, sort of faces, if you will. For, for somebody like Kenan, political warfare, if waged effectively, would ensure that there would be no risk of, of a hot, overt, you know, total military war. What NSC-68 does kind of interestingly and, and, and fundamentally compromises this notion that the United States could wage a war, uh, a cold war, uh, a war short of actually going to war, um, because it introduces um, a vast ramping up of military spending, right, the development uh, of the hydrogen bomb, Vast amounts of resources are now being uh, are, are now being spent on uh, bombs and tanks and guns, and all of these instruments of hot war, but at the same time it 's also increasing the funding for all of these measures short of war, things like propaganda, things like covert operations. Yep. you have the expansion of the Office of Policy Coordination in the sort of four years um between forty-eight and 1952, which is when the OPC is, is folded into and merged into the CIA, uh, no coincidence that this is the time, what that historians have termed sort of the, the golden age of the CIA, when it was uh, under Allen Dulles in the 1950s, when it was um, when it was when it was particularly engaged in covert operations around the world. Um, so NSC 68 both ramps up the tools for both hot war and cold war, but it never reconciles the, the, the fundamental issue when, when it comes to political warfare, at least as, as, as Kennan sort of uh, elucidated it um, in the late 1940s, that if you are to wage a war without going to war, um, you do not rely on your military tools. Um, but this is <laughs> something that NSC 68... Um, not so much rejects, but, but but ignores, if you will. Yeah. It, it, it throws money at it, across the board. Once you have all of these tools for 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 a military conflict, um, how then can you create uh, an approach? How do you go about uh, um, foreign relations that is based on uh, all of these subtle measures? Uh, based on coordinating your overt and covert uh, diplomacy and overt and covert methods. Uh, and this is no coincidence. This is a time when, when someone like him becomes in, uh, is, is, is out of the door, disillusioned. His long sort of lament uh, against American foreign relations in the Cold War really starts to, starts to begin in, in, in this period.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting point. I'm glad you I'm glad you raised it. And uh, I have to apologize for taking so much of your time, but I have to ask you, if you don't mind, one more question about international history. Uh, what you do in this book is you bring in transnational actors and, and by definition you kind of engage in the writing of an international history. I was wondering what advice you might have to, you know, historians who are looking to kind of bring in the transnational angle and write Good international history, what lessons might you have by writing your book
0: yeah um, I must admit i mean I, I was incredibly fortunate in, in terms of uh, my graduate uh, work allowed me to spend a lot of time in the u s but also in Italy and it was it was through Finding interesting material in the state archives, and a lot of uh, oh, I, I draw on it quite substantially, of course. But there was the sense that this is only so much of the story. Um there, there, there must be more, particularly when you're seeing uh, the discussions, that uh, the references within any of these correspondence about the importance of these non state actors. Um, one one example, I mean. Uh, Henry Luce has a, a, quite an influential role in, in this uh, in helping U.S.-Italian relations in this period uh, something that you wouldn't necessarily pick up just by looking going to the National Archives in in College Park. Uh, I started picking up references to this in, in Italian documents and then personal papers um, fascinating sort of side angles and I suppose it's, it was a case of just allowing yourself to to, to, to follow um, hints and, um, and, and and suggestions and, and, and not be just restricted to the state uh, archives, I have admit, on a, on a personal level as well, it kind of brought me back to um, novels that I read uh, when I was <laughs> younger. I mean, I, I remember reading something like Ernest Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms, that was uh, a book I really, really enjoyed. And I remember dipping back into it, and you see some of his descriptions of Italians. Of course, reflecting on, on on World War One and uh, sort of semi autobiographical novel, of course, but reflecting on the pathetic weakness of Italians in World war, <laughs> and it, it, it kind of got me thinking about um, sort of the culture in which many of uh, these political decisions and discussions take place. Um, they're not entirely removed, you know. And as an international historian, that's one of the the, the most Uh, exciting ways I think that our field is going in that it allows you the scope to sort of explore these different avenues and and, 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 um, follow these different tracks really
1: yeah what I find interesting I've done uh, some work with with transnational angles and every time I, I kind of go over it is how much both sides kind of use each other and what I mean by that is you know Government officials have, you know, they work with non-governmental groups when it suits their interests, and they frame it in their minds in certain ways, whereas the non-governmental group will, you know, work with the government because of the resources and prestige it brings, and they may have, like, uh, a completely different understanding of what they're doing. Uh, What brings it to my mind is when when I wrote about Soviet dissidents or human rights groups that worked with the government against the Soviet Union, they weren't exactly, you know, they were obviously against the human rights violations of the Soviet government, but they weren't celebrating Reagan-style free market capitalism or necessarily even hostile to the idea of socialism, which if you look at, you know, the way the Reagan administration framed them, they were freedom fighters for, you know, you know free market capitalism, you know, getting people outside of the state, so that those messages, you know, get blurred. Yeah. And what I like about your book is that you're able to bring out the tensions and the stories of the complexities of the relationship, and I think that 's what good international or transnational history will do
0: thank you yeah it's, it's, you 're absolutely right i mean it's the, the multiple uh, layers to these messages and quite often they 're boiled down by, uh, by political actors reduced to sort of the lowest common denominator but um, some sort of the nuances to these messages to the, to the idea of of of, of fighting communism of, uh, it, it, it has numerous meanings and numerous definitions, and different actors break it down in very different ways. I think one of the most uh, exciting and fun things for, for historians to do is to, is to scratch below, these, below the surface of these terms and try to try to sort of problematize them and, and to understand um, what, what is it that, that, that people are getting at here when you have these genuinely international moments. And, and it has some importance us the citizens as well, particularly when you see um, politicians citing history in a very casual way, often to um, to sort of draw parallels to to, to to the present day. To sort of pause and to think, well, uh, what exactly uh, do we mean by terms um, like uh, democracy or freedom, or yeah. the citation of you know the Cold War victory or something, which. Uh,
1: which um we we hear time and time again, it comes back, like <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah and yeah i- I agree with that, it's interesting, I try to play with that in my undergrad classes about what the Cold War is, what it is, and why it's the you know, inappropriate term, what ways it's a, it's a misleading term, and surprising some of the answers you get mm-hmm. with students who are so far removed from it, I mean, I'm old enough to kind of remember you know going under desks when I was in second or third grade, you know, for uh. Nuclear testing—they don't have you know that kind of relationship with it. So yeah, you you, you raise some um, appropriate issues. So, so
0: and, so it's uh, fascinating when you know, for my students as well, the vast majority of them have no living recollection of the Cold War, and for them it may as well be you know World War Two or uh, the Seven <laughs> Year War, Hundred Years War, you know, Polynesian War. Who for them it's just the past. So uh, it, it's very important. I, one of the things i always try to do is to is to start to break down these ideas and, and, and Again, bring a sharper definition. Uh, what what it was that what what was the Cold War? What, what did it represent? What lessons, if any, can can we draw from them? And and start to start to get them to uh, ask questions, both uh, students but also I, I think as historians and, and, and as 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 the as the general public as to you know how 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 the lessons of history are, are sort of used or or at least cited. Uh, by by politicians
1: today. Oh yes, and they're and they're used very selectively, to say the least. Uh, I, I won't belabor the point, but uh, Marco Rubio's uh, description of U.S. Cuban relations after 1898 was very interesting in what it left out. And he said something to the effect that, you know, after the Spanish-American War, the Cubans and Americans got along fine. No one, you know, ever accused the U.S. of. Conducting imperialism toward Cuba, and I'm just I'm like, wait a minute. I mean, even you can debate the merits of U.S. behavior, but that you know is a very questionable statement uh, to say the least.
0: Right. Uh, well, right. And, and, and these are individuals who, who will have uh, or do have an, uh, you know, a significant role in in the political debate mm-hmm. and, and, and and the next presidential election. So sure <laughs> Absolutely, will be, will be a prominent figure in, at least in the Republican side. Of the-
1: I'm sorry for taking up so much of your time, but it's been a fascinating conversation. And before we go, I was wondering if you could tell the audience uh, what future plans you have with your scholarship.
0: I've always been sort of interested, I guess, in the, the myriad ways in which American power, in the broadest definition, political, economic, cultural, ideological, how it's projected but also challenged. And sort of the work that I'm moving towards now is focus much more on sort of the challenge to uh, American power, especially dissenting voices towards foreign policy. So the new project is looking at the rise of the sort of the transnational whistleblower, particularly during the 1970s. It's, uh, it's, as a concept of the term, it only emerges in the 70s, which is kind of uh, sort of quite interesting in and of itself. Um, so the project is looking at former national security and CIA officials who start to blow the whistle on um, secret American wars abroad. Um, so I'm looking at a couple of individuals looking at um, how they go about doing it, and also just just as importantly in many respects, how the state responds uh, to this new challenge. Um, so I'm hoping it's going to be the first sort of historical work on a phenomenon that's very prominent today, of course, with uh, whistleblowing, um, but also on a more... Broader le- level and perhaps more pertinent, sort of this debate on you know where the line is between national security and civil liberty. It,
1: it's it's a very interesting subject. Uh, in my class uh, when I teach at Ferris, I always raise the issue. One of the course themes I always use is liberty versus order, and I often try to connect the mm-hmm. debates that you know from you know the 1790s, the American Revolution, and after that to kind of debates we have about liberty versus order today. And the students tend to get very uncomfortable about talking about it. Um, I don't know, the American students in general are probably not as political as they might be, but it's an interesting, because it's an interesting argument to, or, or issue to deal with because it's such a fundamental purpose of government to walk that line between protecting people and not becoming um, a tyranny, kind of the ways that James Madison it's, you know, outlined it, even in some of the Federalist documents. So I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're doing work like that. I think it's going to be um, an interesting take that a lot of people will, you know, make them think about uh, important issues.
0: Yeah. No. Oh, hopefully, I mean, it's, it certainly made me think in in uh, sort of new ways as well as you go into these discussions and, and, and debates.
1: And just one one further point, and then I'll let you go. I'm sorry. I have to ask. Do you plan on doing any research at the Reagan Library?
0: Um, hopefully, we, we, we shall see. Would
1: you recommend it? Yeah, I would recommend it. I just, I'm just what I've been there many times, and I don't know what this means, but I was stunned that it was actually opened on Christmas Eve. I was one of only two people in there doing research, and they tried to whisk me out before it closed at two o'clock, and it was a, just a bizarre scenario of me and another person, like the, the library staff was just looking at us, like "Get out of here now. We want to go home." But it is actually open on Christmas Eve, and a lot of a lot of times you would see um, or not think it would be open. But there is a lot of stuff there, and I think you obviously have to check ahead. But, uh, yeah, yeah okay. I think it would, it would probably be worth your while to, to do well, that.
0: Well, I'll certainly look out for that. And I think as much as anything else, it shows your commitment to uh, research to go yeah. so on Christmas Eve. I don't think I would get away with that on the home front.
1: No, no. My uh, the uh, my wife was uh, not thrilled uh, at my behavior. Uh, she thinks I'm a lunatic in many ways. So, well, uh, anyways, it was, it was great talking to you. I enjoyed the book. It should have a wide audience, and uh, you've addressed many issues that, you know, I think show a new direction in U.S. foreign policy writing, um, incorporating kind of the top-down elite level with uh, non-governmental. So I wish you the, the best of luck in the future, and thank you for talking with me.
0: Great. Thanks for having me, Christian. Take care.